If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Our mission statement at Rockwell Prez is that we believe that we are called to be transformed by the cross of Christ, by growing in community, <coughs> excuse me, and cultivating our hearts to love God and to love others. We're in the last Sunday of a six-week sermon series in which we've considered each of the three images of our mission statement, cross, community, and cultivate. And so we're finishing today by asking, what does it mean to cultivate? What are we trying to capture by that image, and why is it part of our mission statement? Well, cultivate, as you might think initially, is, well, it's like farming. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about farming your own heart. Tending it in such a way that it actually moves toward God and away from the things that distract on this world. When I was in college, a number of summers I worked on a, a farm. It was a U picket farm, and we would grow different kinds of berries. And when the berries were ripe, people would come in and then pick uh, bushels of, of berries and, and pay by the bushel. But early in the season, we would begin preparing the ground. And one of the things we did to prepare the ground was we wrote a machine that uh, pumped a chlorine gas, which is a watered-down version of, um, of stuff you know, that you would use in, in, as a biological weapon, into the soil, and it would cover up that soil with plastic, and then it would bury both sides of the plastic with dirt. 
it's illegal now to actually use this, but uh, this farmer had a stockpile of it, and we used it, and I was much too young to know better or to care. And so um, it, it was a sterilizer. What it would do is it would kill everything in the soil, and you would let the plastic sit there for, uh, I think it's four or five days, and then we'd go pull the plastic up, and your soil was then ready to be prepared because you had killed everything you don't want to grow to actually take whatever you did want to put into the soil. And that's the twofold notion of what Paul is after and what we're after in when we talk about cultivating our hearts. There's something that has to be put to death, which is everything that would grow as a result of, of being born in sin, in our old flesh, in this world. Everything that's driven by the principalities and powers, everything that's driven by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, these are all the weeds that need to be put to death so that good fruit then might grow in the soil as a result. But just like working the soil as a farmer is hard work, working your heart is hard work. Right? Something that, that requires investment. And last week we looked at Jesus' teaching uh, about the heart regarding money as a lens through which to consider what it means to cultivate our hearts, right? Jesus said, your treasure reveals where your heart will be. And he go, went on to say that your eyes can be bad, and your eyes are bad if they're greedy. And if your eyes are greedy, they let darkness into your body rather than light. And as a result of that, you move down a road that takes you away from God rather than near to him. So what's the answer? Well, Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. That you would, through that very act, be renouncing the things that can contaminate the old self and see the new self grow. And so one of you came by this week, uh, among a few different stories, and you relayed that you left that last Sunday. And you had actually had some stuff on Craigslist, and this person went and sold, completed the transaction, and had $300 as a result of selling the stuff that had been placed on Craigslist. And the person was driving back into Rockwall, coming up uh, off of I-30 by, over by Panera. And a woman was broken down. She had had a blowout on her car, and she had a couple of little kids with her, even though she was a bit older. And so the person drove by, but began to think, well, I don't really have to be anywhere. I'm not in a terrible hurry. I should really stop and see if I can help. So the person pulled back around and started to talk to the woman and got her backed into a parking lot and began a discussion saying, you know, what's going on? Is, is, are there ways that I can help? They tried to call, reach out to a number of different people the woman knew, but she couldn't get anyone to come and help her immediately. And so the person said, well, here's my name, here's my number. If you need, if somebody, you can't get a hold of someone, call me and I'll come take you wherever you need to go. And so the person got in their car and, and began to drive off. But as they were driving away, they were thinking about that Sunday. They were thinking about Jesus' exhortation to sell your possessions and give to the poor. They were thinking about what it means to actually cultivate one's heart. And they were convicted. And so they turned around and went back to find the woman thinking, I really feel that the Spirit would have me to give part of what I have sold to this woman who is clearly in need. And the person thought, well, you know, I'm going to give half. I'm going to give $150 to the person who's in need. And the person thought, actually, all I have is 20s, so I'm going to have to make it 160 And they get back to the, to the spot, and by the time they get back there, they've decided, I really feel compelled that I need to give all of this, right? Which is not no small amount of money to this woman who's in need, but the woman's gone. Now, I, I chuckled inside when I heard this story because I knew my own heart, and I said, 
that's when I would be out. Right? I've made the decision. I get all the credit. But there's no way I'm chasing down somebody who's just disappeared and I don't know where they are. That's too much time and too much energy and my life is too important. But this person, who's more righteous than I am, began to look. So, well, clearly she must have gone into one of the restaurants. That's the safest place to go. So looks at the restaurants on the south side. No. Uh, yeah, south side of 30. Uh, but uh, it doesn't matter. The <laughs> restaurant's closest to where... It, they were, and they weren't there. And then he well, maybe she went across Ridge to one of the other restaurants. And so they went across Ridge and found the woman in Taco Bell and went in and said, hey, you know, I'm sorry. I don't want you to think I'm stalking you. Um, but you're on my heart. This is what happened. This is what we talked about in church today. This is what I believe God would have me to do. And so here is the $300. And the woman, uh, of course, you know, overwhelmed, broke down in tears. It was a huge amount of money for her in her situation and was touched very much by that. But what's so great is the picture that gives us of what, it, of what we're talking about when we talk about cultivating our hearts, right? The notion of initially um, the person, I'm going to go by, I'm sure that person has someone to help. Maybe not. Maybe I'm the person who should help and going to help. And then saying, well, call me if you need anything more. Oh, I think I actually should give. I'm going to go back. I'm going to give half. No, I'm going to give all, right? And so on and so forth, right? This, this, and you can see, really, even as the story unfolds, the separating, right? Where, where, um, where we might be like, I've got this. I need this. Uh, it's from the sale of my stuff that I've earned. And this opening of hand and openness to what God is doing and opening, openness to what the Spirit might work in the midst of this and a relinquishing then of the, of the earthly treasures that we might be bound up in pursuing in pursuit of uh, seeking things above, right? What Paul's talking about uh, to us about today. And so this is what we want to explore and unpack and say, what does it really mean to cultivate our hearts, to grow in this way, to be encouraged even by this story, but also by the teachings of Paul. Paul takes up uh, the idea of cultivating your hearts, not that he would use that word, in a number of different places, it's very important to him, but one of the best places, one of the clearest places that this occurs is in Colossians 3. And uh, Paul is essentially going to say three things. Number one, you have to, you have, to have the right compass uh, bearing. And, and the, the way he's going to say this is you have to seek things above. Secondly, he's going to tell you to get naked. You have to get naked for Jesus. And third, some of you are excited. That's a good point. <laughs> And third, uh, you have to get dressed again for Jesus. Thank goodness, because it's not good to be running around naked. So, seek things above, get naked, and get dressed. Let's see how Paul unpacks this for us. Now, when we talk about seeking things above, uh, uh, Paul starts in Colossians 3. If you notice, uh, right off the bat, uh, he says, he says, if then which could just as easily be translated, therefore. What Paul is saying, as a result of everything I just got done saying, now I'm going to say this. Well, we're considering the now I'm going to say this without really considering everything that's come before. We don't have time to consider all of Colossians 2, but to summarize Colossians 2, because it has an important bearing on Colossians 3, we can simply say this. It's all about union with Christ. Now, if you don't know anything else about Paul's theology, the one home base that you must know and must understand, the most essential and important aspect of Paul's understanding of what has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus 
is a phrase that he will use all the time, which either gets translated union with Christ or participation with Christ. And in Paul's mind, what, he, what he's articulating is that what is true of Jesus is true of you because of Jesus' death and resurrection and because you have died and been buried and been raised with him. Also, as a result of that death and resurrection, what is true of Jesus' future is true of your future. Right? This, is Paul's, this is the home base of Paul's entire theology. Right? He will use this phrase to describe what has happened in the cross and resurrection of Jesus more than anything else. And so you must understand that what is true of Jesus is true of you. If you have a Bible, you can look quickly at, at uh, chapter 2, verse 12 of Colossians, in which Paul says that you have not only been buried with Jesus, but you have been raised with him. And in verse 13, he says that you have been made alive together with Jesus. This is the notion of union with Christ, and it's why Paul then goes on in verse 1 of chapter 3 to say, so then, therefore, you have died with Jesus, you have been buried with Jesus, you have been raised with Jesus, and now that commences a new kind of life, or should if you're actually believing and invested in it. Being unified, according to Paul, means what? Look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. In other words, your new compass setting will be the risen and glorified Christ who is enthroned at the right hand of God, and because he's king, reigning over his kingdom from that place, that is where right, our directional compass gets set, so that Christ and his kingdom and my union with the king now informs everything that I am and everything that I engage. This is what Paul is describing for us. And so uh, that might sound a little philosophical. It might sound a little abstract. What does it actually mean to live out of union with Christ in such a way that actually affects your day-to-day? Well, we might say, what is true of us as a result of our union with Christ? Well, what is true of you is certainly that you are radically loved and forgiven. Right? Is it not that God would not spare himself Son, to redeem you, to forgive your sins, to love you and bring you back into the fold, then, therefore, as you go forth into the world, you must be a radically loving and forgiving person. Right? If there is someone in your heart that you love to hate, that's a problem. Right? That's not something that identifies you as someone who is seeking things above, that identifies you as someone who is seeking, seeking things below, earthly things so by which you might punish that person. If we live out of our union with Christ, we realize that God has been exceedingly generous. He's not spared anything, and he invites us to participate in all the riches of heavens. If I go from there, then and say, I'm going to walk through this world by being a bit stingy and not being terribly generous, right? I'm not seeking the things that are above. My life is not being informed by my union with Christ. My life is being informed by my old self-desires. If I'm union with Christ, then it is declared as Jesus hangs on the cross that it is finished. I do not have to manufacture an obedience by which I believe I'm acceptable in God's sight. No, because I'm unified with Christ and what is true of Jesus is true of me means that I am acceptable, as acceptable as Jesus in God's sight. And therefore, the obedience that flows out of that is out of the love and grace that I've received rather than trying to achieve something. If my morality, if my obedience is all simply to achieve something, to get something, to win something, to control something, then indeed, I'm not seeking things that are above. 
I'm not informed by my union with Christ. So this is what it means to seek things that are above. But Paul's saying, no, you really need to do it. It's a, it is a seeking, right? It's not something that simply happens. It is not automatic. It is something that you must now labor in. Right? In the same way that boys and girls, you might play hide-and-go-seek. And, you know, think of the person you know who's the best hider and how hard you must seek to find that very good hider. Right? That intentionality in seeking is what Paul is talking about for us to labor in. Lewis and I have been reading uh, the Hatchet series, which is just a great, a boys' boys kind of uh, book. Uh, Hatchet won all kinds of awards. It's the story of a boy who's flying over the Alaskan wilderness in a, uh, like a bush plane, and the, the uh, pilot has a heart attack. And the plane goes down, and the boy survives and has to live for two months on his own in the Alaskan wilderness uh, with nothing but a hatchet. And so it's a great read, but it begins a series of uh, Brian getting into difficult situations and living by his wits and surviving. And so the next book, you might, <laughs> apparently the author did pretty well with the first book and said, I'm going to tell this story again and again. But they, they really are quite good. And you think, how is Brian, the boy, going to find himself back in this situation? Well, at the beginning of the second book, some American uh, government officials show up to Brian's house, and they're like, we study survival. We write survival guides. We teach people who are going to be in terrible situations how to survive, but all of our knowledge is theoretical. Like we, don't, we don't actually, we've never had to survive as where, Brian, you have. And so we'd actually like to study you. We'd like to take you back to the Alaskan wilderness. We'd like to redo the two months. And we'd like to observe and take notes on what you do and how you survive. And so the mother protests. Brian says, absolutely, uh, and eventually goes back to the Alaskan wilderness with all kinds of protections in place. Ends up just going back with a psychologist who's there to observe him and take notes. They land. The psychologist says, we better get the plane unloaded, and, uh, which is full of supplies, the psychologist says, we've brought everything but the kitchen sink. And Brian says, no, we can't unload any of that. The psychologist is a little bit surprised, but Brian goes on to say, uh, if you unload that gear, right, we may not use it tomorrow, and we may not use it two days from now, but inevitably we're going to use that gear. Right? We can't not use that gear. It's going to get so hard that you having that will undoubtedly rely upon it and this whole study will be pointless because you're not going to learn about survival if you have a safety net right, that's always there that prevents you from having to really learn how to survive. And so Brian, the boy says, send it back or I'm going home. Because what he says to the psychologist, he says, you're just playing games. You're playing, you're playing a survival game. You're not really learning to survive. I thought, what a great metaphor, how often we play games at Christianity. But we're not really throwing ourselves into seeking things above. Right? We pretend to here and there, but we want that safety net of all the earthly things that we love so much and keep us comfortable. And as a result of that, we don't really labor. We don't really put our hearts fully into seeking things that are above. And so... I think we have to wrestle with the notion of what really does it mean to seek things that are above? What does it mean to grow in that fashion? If this is Paul's exhortation, you've been unified with Christ, therefore this is your business as a Christian disciple. Seek things above. 
And then if I ask you, how do you seek things above? If you don't have a pretty good answer to that question, how good are you at your faith? How serious are you about seeking things above? If I say, oh, okay, how do I go about seeking things above? And you're like, uh, I'll get back to you on that. Well, Paul helps us out, right? Paul tells us what it means to be serious about this. And the first thing you have to do is get naked. <laughs> that is so fun to say on a Sunday morning, getting naked for Jesus. All right. Uh, you, and if you doubt me, let's, listen, the basic metaphor that Paul's using here, right, in the Greek is you have to get undressed, you have to take your old clothes off, and you have to put on a new set of clothes. This is literally what he's describing. It's the metaphor he's using to say, you have some really stinky clothes on as a result of still living in the flesh and living in the old self. And you've got to take them off. They don't work. There's no mending them. There's no sewing them. You can't wash them. You've got to get rid of them, and you've got to get dressed in your union with Christ, right? with the righteousness of Christ, and out of that you can then live. If you just look at verses 5, 8, and 9, in 5 it says put to death. In verse 8 uh, it says... Um, uh, put them all away. And in verse 9, it says, uh, put off. So you've got put to death, put them all away, and put off. It's all the same language. Get rid of that set of clothes. right? You've got to get them off, and you've got to put it away. And so, well, what are we talking about? Well, uh, the children's lesson is not a bad notion, right? Anything that displeases God, which is both the bad things that we do, but also the good things that we fail to do. Now, Paul gives a couple of lists here. What does he mention? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness. He goes on to round it out with anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Now, the list isn't that important. You, it's not comprehensive. You can all think of different evils and additional sins that we could add to that list. What the point of this is, is not what you're putting off. It's that you are putting off. Did you get that? This isn't an exercise and let's name all the things we need to put off. Paul's just throwing out a few examples so that you get to the business of actually putting off. What do you need to take off and put away and put to death? What inhibits, what gets in the way of you living out of your union with Christ? This is what Paul is after for us, that we would be made new. What do you need to set aside to be more intentional? This uh, reminded of working on uh, my uh, demon doctor in ministry, and how when I started the program, you were supposed to be done in like they wanted you to be done in I think four years, something like that. And so, and you, if you're not done in seven years, you're in trouble, right? They start to threaten we're going to kick you out of the program. And so I started to enter my sixth year, and they, I got called in for the talk. Uh, you're in trouble, right? You're you need to finish this up because we're not going to humor you forever. And so that was the wake-up call, like, oh, okay, I, I better get very serious about this. So from that point forward, what did I have to do? I had to say no to fun things, right? I can't, I can't go hang out at this party, or I can't go to this event, right? And I have to go to bed uh, early to get up early, to do work early in the morning, to read and to write, and I have to keep this up consistently, right? I have to slog through this, right, ultimately to write, you know... Uh, like 300 pages. It takes a long time to generate. And so I had to labor at that. But the reason, right, that that got done was making a decision. I have to put off a lot of things to accomplish what in the season is most important. 
That's what Paul's saying. What is most important is for you to seek the things that are above and to live out of your union with Christ. If that is what is most important, what do you need to put off to move faithfully in that direction? This is the notion of getting naked. All right? Again, like I told you, we don't stay naked. Paul says, now once you've got rid of those old clothes, uh, you can get dressed. But I want to remind you, you know, what's the challenge? You th- sometimes you read this and you think, well, that should be easy. I'm going to go home and I'm going to get rid of one thing. Don't underestimate how much you love those old clothes, right? You all have your favorite sweats and flannel, and they can be ragged, and your wife is like, you need to throw those away. And you're like, no, I love this shirt and these pants, and this is my go-to, right? Some of you may have had uh, experience that we've seen. You drop a kid off at camp, and they have a trunk full of all kinds of clothes and supplies, and you say goodbye, have a great week. And you return the following weekend to pick up your child. And your child is wearing the clothes that you dropped them off in. Don't think necessarily that much of it at the time, but you get home and you open the trunk. And the trunk is perfectly folded. You think, my child doesn't fold like that. Only mama folds like that. Those clothes haven't been touched. And you turn to your child and you say, did you change your clothes this week? And you get kind of a like, well, is that really an important question? And... And my favorite is we, we get, there was a lot of swimming. It doesn't really matter because you're always in the water. And so you have to pry those clothes off, right? But they, just like that kid, you have a set of clothes that's really comfortable. It's your preference. You want to stay in those clothes, right? And you don't want to necessarily change. And that's, um, there's almost an addictive quality to the old clothes by which we've made our way in this world. And don't, pretend, don't be fooled that taking them off is easy. It, it requires an enormous amount of work. And if you think you've taken off those clothes and you haven't actually worked at it or thought it was that hard, I guarantee you, you have not touched the clothes. It's a painful, hard process. But Paul goes on to say in verse, uh, in verse 10 and 12, he says something very interesting. He says, you've already been dressed and you better keep getting dressed. This is a fascinating aspect of Pauline theology where Paul uh, is articulating what we often refer to as the already not yet. In which he says, you've already been dressed in Christ. You've been unified to him by faith. Therefore, you are dressed in his righteousness. And he says at the same time, you better keep getting dressed. And you think, well, that's kind of odd, right? Is it done or is it not done? And Paul would say, "Uh, yes, it is done and you better keep doing it. So verse 10, you get... um, Uh, And have put on, right, past tense, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And then verse 12, the exhortation, put on then. Right, you have, having put it on and put on then. You're dressed and you better keep getting dressed. Otherwise, uh, you're going to be in your old clothes before you know it. So how are we being dressed? What does that mean? Essentially, it means that we are being made to look like God. If you look at Paul's list of virtues in verse 12, He lists compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, this is a remarkable list because all of these attributes are actually attributed to God himself elsewhere in Scripture. So what Paul is saying, to grow in Christ, you will become like God. You will become someone who bears a resemblance to Jesus himself in the incarnation as a result of being clothed in your union with him and in his righteousness. Now, you might think, well, all well and good, but do I... You know, compassion, love, kindness, forgiveness, that sounds like a lot of work. Do I really want to go down that road? 
Well, realize that there are significant benefits to going down that road. Sometimes we think of Christianity only as this labor, and I have to be this obedient person so I don't incur the wrath of God. Look what Paul is holding out to you. In verse 11, he describes a radically different community as a result of those who seek things above. Here there is not Greek and Jew. In other words, uh, he's saying the most major racial ethnic distinction of the ancient world gets put under union with Christ. In other words, the church is to be a community in which our union to Christ trumps all the kinds of racial and ethnic challenges we might suffer. He goes on to say, um, here there is not circumcised and uncircumcised. Now realize when Paul writes this, the church is still arguing over, fighting over, whether you should be circumcised or not. So Paul is at least saying, uh, your theological disputes shouldn't divide. You should be a people of love and forgiveness and harmony to such an extent that you can, disagree, you can agree to disagree. Now, that might not extend to everything, but it certainly extends to some pretty big theological topics and, I would argue, to some pretty big the, uh, political topics. And then he goes on to say there's neither barbarian nor Scythian, slave or free. Right? The basic distinctions, slave and free, between those uh, of economic difference in the ancient world and then barbarian Scythian, they were your, they were your really weird people. Right, uh, you, you, bar, you know, barbarian is like your, um, your crazy, uh, which there's not a good illustration. There's nothing that you, ha- I mean, imagine a, just a crazy kippy started coming to church, right? I mean, really, like, just drove in their, their Volkswagen bus out of the 1960s. But love Jesus, and you're like, I know you love Jesus, but you're really weird, and I'm not, I'm not into what you're into. Right, But what Paul is saying is these differences that you feel and your desire to move away from people who are different from you, he says, uh-uh. He says, you're pressed together by your union in Christ. Right? And these things no longer divide. They no longer separate your community that's bound together. So there's a radical unity to the community. In verse 14, he says that that community is characterized by perfect harmony. And in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts so a community that, that has a remarkable degree of peace for those of you who struggle with anxiety, right? And then, uh, and to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Right? It's a community that's characterized by thanksgiving. So take a step back. Where do you want to live? Do you want to live in a community that is uh, radically diverse but unified, characterized by love and forgiveness and perfect harmony, and exhibits peace and thankfulness? Yes, please. Right? In this day and age, in our constant bickering and inability to have any civil conversation, right? what kind of place would that community be? It would be remarkable in every way. It would really be quite outstanding. And this is what is held out for us if we truly live out of our union with Christ. Right? To seek the things that are above. To put off the old set of clothes and put them on. Now, the last thing that you need to see here is how deeply Paul assumes that you will assume that community is part of this process. Paul does not for a moment think that this is an individual enterprise. Community is assumed throughout, right? He talks about loving one another, forgiveness, which you can't do by yourself, harmony, teaching, admonishing and teaching one another, and then worshiping together, right? This getting undressed and getting dressed, he sees as a community event. And this is why... 
right? We established Cultivate Groups as the place where some of this would, would take place. A Cultivate Group is the kind of place where the story I told you at the beginning of the sermon today, that's where you would, what a beautiful place to tell that story and say, hey, be encouraged. I took off some of my old clothes this week. I got naked and this is what it looked like, right? And you, but it, you can be encouraged by that story. Right? By someone really saying, I'm putting off the old self. I'm putting it to death. I'm putting it away. But it's also the place where you could sit down and say, you know, I tried to do the same thing. I tried to select five things to put on Craigslist out of my house. And I couldn't do it. I picked five things. and I was like, I love these things too much. I don't want to part with them. And so then I got mad. And I was so mad at myself for not being able to part with these things. And then that anger turned outward. I contempt for all the poor people and started saying, they're so lazy, if they would just get busy, I wouldn't have to sell my stuff and give it to them. This isn't my problem, it's the poorest problem. And, they, you, know, and you sit in a cultivate group and say, you know, that, really, that darkness in my heart surprised me. And I, A, need to confess it, but B, I need you all to help me think that through. Where's that coming from and why do I have such a reliance, such a love for my possessions? Right? Obviously, that's an idolatry. Help me to think about that. Now, cultivate groups for a number of reasons, and a lot of those reasons are our fault, right? We know you were overwhelmed, a number of them didn't go well, some of them are going fine, all well and good, right? So we spent all summer and all fall talking ad nauseum about how to fix some of the challenges, and in January, we're going to try to reboot that. Now, we're not going to go through all the details of that um, and how we've tried to improve that system. It's not the place or the time to do that, but it is the place or the time to challenge you to say, do you want to seek the things above? Do you want to be serious about being a Christian or do you want to pretend? Well, it's time to get undressed and to get dressed. And to do that, you need the brothers and sisters sitting next to you. Right? And so if you're not in some kind of group with, that facilitates that, then you need to look forward to January. And when we announce the meeting, for anyone interested in being in a Cultivate group and getting undressed and dressed, I love saying that, uh, then you need to make that meeting. And from there, together, we'll seek the things that are above. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are kind to us and loving and that you desire better for us than we desire for ourselves. We thank you that you would challenge us to seek the things above. We thank you that you hold out for us the most beautiful picture of Christian community. But we confess that we are wearing some stinky clothes. And so we ask that you would help us to take them off and to put them away. We ask that you'd help us to be clothed anew in the righteousness of Christ and to live out of that reality which already exists. And Spirit, would you help us in this very process to cling to one another, to encourage one another, to build up the body. And together, we ask that uh, indeed you would help us to live out of our union with Christ and to seek the things that are above. We pray that you would nourish us and encourage us toward this end, even as we come to your table this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.